I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're coming to the very end of this letter. If you remember from last week, Paul is giving emphatic directives to the young Timothy, and Timothy is serving this church in Ephesus that is what we might label dysfunctional. It's a dysfunctional church. Timothy has been sent to stay here. He's called to remain and teach and charge certain teachers not to teach false doctrine. He's called to fix some of the things that were going wrong. Specifically, there were some issues they had with their leadership. They had some people in the leadership that were money-hungry. They didn't understand the things that they were teaching, but they were taking a position of authority and then using that position for their own gain. They were teaching things that were not true. In fact, they were contrary to the gospel, and Timothy had to come in and correct things. Now, that's a high order for a young pastor like Timothy, and so that's why Paul, the seasoned apostle, had to write a letter, not just one, but two, to uphold this young man as he began his ministry and continued to be faithful through it. This was a church that I would say that the pressure was on. Uh, the, the stakes were high. This was in a, a church that was in a large city with a diverse group of people there, and Timothy, as a young man, had to set things in order, and it wasn't always clear if <laughs> what was he to do. Uh, he had enemies. He had to put people out of the church, or at least get ready to, if sin kept going on unaddressed like it was. And so there are high stakes on this young man, pressure is on, and he needs to persevere through the difficulty. Now in chapter 6, if you remember from last week, he couldn't be passive in this. This wasn't something that he could just hope everything goes well, and he could just kind of sit back, throw his hands in the air, and say, well, God, I'm putting this all in your hands, and I'm just going to go with the flow and hope it all works out. He couldn't do that. In fact, if you remember from last week, in chapter 6, there were some imperatives given to Timothy, some, some things he had to do, some directives. Remember in verse 12 of chapter 6, you had to, in 11, you had to pursue righteousness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. There were things that he had to do. There were actions that he had to commit himself to. And now, as he kind of turns the corner and comes to the end of this letter, he wants to give Timothy some fuel. Alright, Timothy, you got to flee. you got to fight you got to pursue. you got to take hold of the eternal life. But what's to motivate these things? What's the fuel that's going to drive him to continue doing this when the stakes are high and the pressure's on? How is he going to be able to do this? And here's the answer. You're going to see it in verses 13 to 16. Here's the answer. is that Paul brings to Timothy's attention the nature of the God he serves. He brings to Timothy, he brings before him a startling picture of God, a grand, soaring view of the Almighty God as the fuel that will motivate him to continue in the midst of the pressure. This is, listen church, this is what we're all starving for, a grand 
high picture, an understanding, a grasp of the greatness in majesty of God. We, we don't always understand that that's what we're starving for, hungering for, longing for. And so often we're turning to other things to fill the void. But at the heart of it, what we need most, what we long for, maybe in unarticulated ways, is this understanding of God and His greatness and majesty and glory. And the reality is, if we were to have such a vision, that we would be motivated in service to Christ though the stakes would be high and the pressure would be on. We, we can't settle into this small God, inconsequential God way of thinking. This is what Timothy needed to be reminded of, is the nature of God. Isn't it a normal experience? And maybe this is you. We've all had different weeks. Maybe yours was busy and distracted. Maybe you had worries on your mind, anxieties starting to grasp you by the throat. And you come into church on a Sunday morning thinking, well, I just need to get out of here and get back to what I need to do because i got all these things to do. Pressure's on at work. Pressure's on with these relationships. There's tension here. I need to get working on these things in my life. Uh, a sermon about the nature of God? What kind of practical solutions is that going to bring for me? It's often that in our lives as Christians, we maybe settle into a certain view of God. Maybe the newness of our conversion kind of wears off. We settle in with a go with the flow kind of thinking Christianity. We're at ease with ourselves, at ease with the world, at ease and accustomed to God. We're familiar with God. The godness of God begins to be forgotten. He shrinks in His own importance to us. We become at ease with the eternal realities at stake. And there's times in our lives when God in His grace absolutely and dramatically blows the lid off and explodes the small victory picture that we had of God and he allows us to see him from his word in the glorious way that he truly is we get a greater bigger more biblical picture of the majesty of the holy God we serve and then we're motivated small God thinking doesn't motivate anyone right if you have a small God it's gonna be hard to wake up in the morning and serve him if you have a small God, it's not going to create much zeal. Is your idea of God so small that it doesn't motivate you toward any service of Him or any awe of who He is? So some of us, even though we may be saved, might need to have a bigger picture of God. This has happened throughout history. It's actually a pretty common experience where someone will get legitimately saved and then it won't be until later in their life that they kind of get their small God thinking shattered and they get a bigger picture, a clearer picture of the actual character of God. I've read about the late Charles Coulson, an experience he had. He was the hatchet man in the Watergate scandal in the 70s. He came to Christ weeping tears of repentance after he was found out in his sin. And a few years later, as he began to walk with Christ, he settled into his idea of God. He began to experience a sort of spiritually dry season. 
And in that season, one of his good friends offered him uh, a series of lectures by R.C. Sproul titled The Holiness of God. And Charles Coulson said, uh, what kind of theologian is this? I don't want to listen to a theologian. He wasn't all too excited about it. Coulson wrote in his book later telling of this experience, he says, all I knew about Sproul was that he was a theologian, and so I wasn't enthusiastic. After all, I reasoned that theology was for people who had time to study, locked in ivory towers, far from the battlefield of human need. However, at my friend's urging, I finally agreed to watch Sproul's series. By the end of the sixth lecture, I was on my knees, deep in prayer, in awe of God's absolute holiness, It was a life-changing experience as I gained a completely new understanding of the holy God I believe in and worship. My spiritual drought ended, but this taste for the majesty of God only made me thirst for more of Him. Isn't it what we're all starving for? To see God as He is, and perhaps there are some of us who are in need of a Coulson-like moment where the the small God that that we've kind of taken this holy God, this majestic God, and we've squeezed Him into our own image. We create God into our own image. And He's nice and tame. And He's not holy. And He's not transcendent. And He doesn't inspire you. He's weightless. In fact, that is the biggest problem in the church, I believe, is that God in many churches and in many lives is weightless. He's relatively unimportant. That the reality of the existence of a holy God is just not as important as TV or social media. The reality of the majesty of the God we serve the coming judgment that He has promised, these things simply don't inspire us. We're distracted by all the cares of the world. And God weighs very little. There's no gravity in our understanding of God. And therefore, there's no awe, wonder, and worship because God has become tame. We've lost an idea of His greatness. And you know what happens when a church loses the greatness of God, don't you? What happens when a church loses a view of the greatness of God? It gets caught up with other ways to try to motivate the people. The preacher will get up there and do anything he can to try to motivate his people to action, to try to give them a sense of action, to do something in response to what they're hearing. And so they'll, they'll get tricky. They'll pull out any fad, any trend. They'll do whatever they can. Endless strings of jokes and stories trying to entertain and amuse their congregants all because they know, they think, at least in the back of their minds, that God's not enough for these people. I need something else. And if that's ever the way a church is headed, those are the first whiffs of death in the church. We need a soaring majestic view of the majesty of God. And that is what Paul knew that Timothy needed if he were to persevere in the pressure of the church he was in. And this is not just true of a pastor like Timothy. It's not just true of Timothy in his ministry situation. You and I and every Christian 
in whatever situation we find ourselves in, we need to be motivated by, fueled by the majesty of God or else we're going to run dry. We're going to find ourselves in a spiritual drought. Maybe you need a fresh encounter with the living God. You can't run from being a theologian. You already are. You already have views of God in your mind. They might be right. They might be wrong. But all of us must wrestle with who God is. The very nature of our Creator. We must come face to face with what Scripture says He's like. And when we do, we will actually find that this is motivating and thrilling and empowering us to serve. You'll find that the people throughout church history who have done great things for God, who have seemed to live two lives in one, who have accomplished much and risked much and attained much, these are men and women who had great ideas of the majesty of God. And so they were fearless when it came to serving Him. It was said of John Calvin that no man had a profounder sense of God than he. I know the story of Elizabeth Elliot, the, the wife of Jim Elliot. You've probably heard of him who died on the mission field giving his life to spread the gospel. Though there was great opposition, who said, Elizabeth said later in life, God's command, go ye and preach the gospel to every creature, was a categorical imperative. The question of personal safety was wholly irrelevant. You don't get to be like that where you say, I'll go no matter where God calls me to go, regardless of how safe it is. You don't get to be like that if you have a small God. If you have a sovereign God, you can say that. If you have a big God, you can say these kinds of things. You can have a profound sense of God and that will fuel you to risk taking obedience to the Great Commission. This is the kind of God that we serve and it's the kind of God that Paul is showing Timothy. Hey Timothy, in the midst of the pressure that you're under, the microscope that's on you, all eyes of this church want to look to you. There's a lot of pressure. Eternal lives and souls are on the line, Timothy, but you got to persevere. You have to persevere. And for you to persevere, there's nothing that will help you to persevere except this. You need to see what your God is like. You need to see how great He is. And so he begins to describe God. God is the motivation. God Himself. God, who He is. How He's revealed Himself to be. We're going to see it here in verses 13 to 16. Let's read it together. We're going to see some glimpses of God that are to be fuel for Timothy. Glimpses of God that are fuel for Timothy and for us. Look at verse 13. I charge you, in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in His testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will display at the proper time. He, who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion forever. 
This has happened one other time in chapter 1 where Paul just breaks into this doxology of worship of the true God and draws Timothy's attention to the nature of our God. We're going to see five glimpses. Let's look at glimpse number one. God gives life. God gives life. This is the first reality that Paul points to Timothy. Hey, look at this about God. Verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. Hey, Timothy, God is your life giver. God is your life preserver. You didn't give life to yourself. You didn't create yourself. You didn't cause yourself to exist. You can't keep yourself alive. Do all the exercise. Change your diet. Avoid anything that might be unhealthy for your life. You can't keep yourself alive because ultimately it's God who upholds your life. He's the giver of life. He gives life to people. He takes life from people. He is sovereign over your life. God gives life to all things. Now this was meant to be a great encouragement to Timothy. If Timothy's hearing this, he's reading, God is the one who gave me life. If my life is upheld by God, if God is the one who's ultimately upholding my life, that means I'm invincible until God tells me my life is done. I don't have to fear these people who might take my life. My life is in the hands of God. He's going to preserve me. And if I die either by old age or by disease or by martyrdom, I die because it's the Lord who took my life. The Lord gives life. The Lord takes life. Our lives are in His hands and we can trust Him with our lives. I exist and you exist because God made you. You were made. (laughs) You are a creature, not a creator. You were made by God. You were made for God. God gives you life. God upholds your life. God will take your life. All your life is in the hand of God. And He gives it as He wills and takes it as He wills. And this is meant to be great encouragement for us to serve Him while we have life. Because when our life is gone, we'll be able to worship Him for all eternity in heaven. But we won't be able to do certain things while we're still here. When we're up there, We won't be able to evangelize. We won't be able to make disciples. Oh, we'll be worshiping and praising God for all eternity. But we have been given a life here on earth. And until that life is gone, we're to be busy serving Him. God gives you life. It's His. He owns it. He gave it to you. He upholds it. He'll take it away someday. And you're invincible until He decides to take it from you. Now, if you're you're not a Christian... We are so happy you're here. And this is one of those reasons why you can turn to God. God gave you everything that you have. Your life is His. He made you for Himself. He made you to have your longing satisfied in loving and worshiping Him. He made you for that. And the Christian message is that we have all fallen short of this, haven't we? No Christian is here because we think we've done enough to earn God's favor, not in the slightest. We are Christians because we know that we were made by God for God and we have failed dramatically. That we can't do anything to earn our way now back to God. That's how bad our failure was. That's how bad our sin was. And we believe down to the core of our being that we deserve the righteous justice of God's punishment. And we believe also that God was so gracious and is so kind 
He's so steadfast in his love toward his people that he sent his son to live a perfect life that we could never live and to die a sinner's death that we deserved and then to be resurrected on the third day and then to invite all sinners everywhere to repent and to trust in him for their forgiveness of their sins. You owe your life to God because you were made by him for him. And Christians, we owe our lives doubly to God because he not only made us, but he redeemed us. He gives us life. Friends, He gives spiritual life. And if you found that you are lacking spiritual life, that you are dead in your trespasses and sins, and that you have come to realize that your guilt before God is something that you can't cleanse yourself of, you've come to understand what the Bible teaches about sin. That's good news. Because now you can understand what the Bible teaches about grace. And grace says that you can't do anything to earn it, but it is a free gift of grace that God gives to us His very own Son. And by faith in Him, you can be totally and completely and immediately forgiven. And God gives not only your physical life, but your spiritual life in a new status. He makes you a new creation and you share all eternity with Christ and with your heavenly Father and with all the saints in glory. God gives life. He owns your life. It is to be lived for Him. This is the first glimpse we see into who God is, but let's read on. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will display at the proper time. Let's pause there. Here's our second glimpse of God. First we see God gives life to all things. Secondly, God plans to reveal His Son. If you were here last week, Central to the charge in verse 13 and 14 is the idea that Timothy ought to keep the commandment, that is the gospel, unstained, free from reproach until Jesus returns. And as he's explaining that, Paul couches that directive in an understanding of this reality that Jesus is going to return. Jesus made this confession before Pilate and that he's going to return at some point. Say, what does it mean that he he made this good confession? What is the good confession? Why does Paul bring this up? Well, well, uh, you got to see this in in the context to really appreciate it. Turn to Matthew 27, where we're going to understand what is the good confession and, and why exactly Paul brings it up and what it has to do with God's plan to reveal his son. Matthew 27, verse 11, Jesus is standing before Pilate. Here's the good confession. Verse 11, now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. You have said so, which by the way is like saying, you got it, that's right, that's right, that's who I am. Uh, Pilate's saying, are you who they say you are? Are you, in fact, the king of the Jews? Jesus says, that's exactly right. Right on. You nailed it. King of the Jews, that's who I am. And guess what that response caused the people to do? It riles riles them up into a frenzy of hatred. And that confession that Christ made before these people now becomes a club that his opponents are going to use to beat them up with. In fact, look ahead at verse 29. 
Same chapter. Verse 28, they stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns. Why do you think they made a crown? It's because they knew that Jesus had claimed to be a king. So they're going to give him a, a crown. <laughs> they're going to mock his confession and give him a crown of thorns. And they put it on his head, and they put a reed in his hand, symbolizing like this scepter. He's got this crown, he's got this reed. And they kneel before him, and they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! This confession that Jesus made before many witnesses now becomes the very fuel that his enemies are mocking him for. They're spitting on him. They're setting him up with this faux crown and this faux scepter. And they're making fun of the king of the universe. Verse 37, And over his head they put a charge against him which read, This is Jesus, king of the Jews. Do you think they're, they're feeling that it was true? No, they're mocking him. They don't actually think he's the king of the Jews. He is the king of the Jews. It's a true confession. But they're, they're mocking him with his confession. They're beating him up. They're making fun of him. They crucify Him. Verse 42, the mockers, chief priests, scribes, elders, they mocked Him saying, He saved others. He cannot save Himself. He's the King of Israel. There it is again. He's the King of Israel. Let Him come down from the cross and we will believe in Him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver Him now. See, you see what He did? Jesus knew that if He were to make the confession that He was, in fact, the King of the Jews, that it, they would turn around and beat Him up for it. They would mock Him for it. They would kill Him for it. They would nail Him to a cross for it. They would treat Him like a criminal. I mean, what a scandal. Had He sinned? Had He sinned once? Had he done anything but love the people that he came to save? That's all he had done is he loved them. And he preached to them truth. And he offered him himself for their, to be their Savior. That's why he came. I mean, let's pause for a second. Just glory in the reality that this is the King. That is him. He's the King of all kings. And here are the people mocking him and beating him and spitting on him, assaulting his character, blaspheming his confession. He is the true King. What love does Jesus have for sinners? That he would go to this depth of excruciating torture that he might save sinners like us? You go, why is He there on the cross? Well, Paul would say in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why He came. And Paul would say, of, of whom I'm the foremost. Paul would say, I'm the worst sinner there is. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Why didn't He avoid the cross? It's because He went to the cross because He loved sinners and He wanted to save sinners and He wanted to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus didn't back down from the confession that would get Him killed. He didn't back down to the confession that would put Him on a cross. He didn't back down from it. He went and said, yes, I am the King. What unflagging faithfulness to His own Father. And Paul brings it up to young Timothy and says, Timothy, you remember what your Savior did? 
You remember what your Lord did in the midst of opposition? He made the good confession before Pontius Pilate. And what happened to him? And Timothy? Do the same thing. Press on, Timothy. The church might turn on you. The elders might turn on you. Life might be hard. You might be oppressed. You might be marginalized for that confession. But make that confession anyway. Be just like your Savior. And then, to balance out that call to remember the suffering of Christ, he does say, verse 15, back in 1 Timothy chapter 6, which he will display at the proper time. The appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. The word appearing. It's in the same word group as uh, the word that means shining forth like a brilliant flash of light. Can you see the contrast of these two realities? He is talking about Jesus standing before Pilate, making the confession that will eventually end up putting Him on a cross, and yet He's saying, yes, that Jesus, that same Jesus, He will actually return. He will be revealed. He will shine forth in all that He actually is. The true character of Jesus Christ, though He was mocked, and though the world saw Him as a fool, and though the world saw Him as weak, and the world killed Him, He will one day shine forth in all His brilliant glory and splendor. One day He will be revealed for who He truly is. Listen, there is always suffering before there is glory in the Christian life. Always. We follow a Savior who suffered before He is glorified. Timothy, don't forget that you hold the confession that put Jesus on the cross. And don't forget that that same confession puts you on the right side of eternity. See friends, this is the relevance for all of us. Is Christianity becoming more tolerated in our nation? Are Christians more loved and more appreciated? You have a confession that Jesus is Lord. You have that confession. You say with Jesus, He is the King. You say that. That's what it means to be a Christian. You profess that. And that confession in this life will bring you through the same Calvary road that Jesus walked. You will bear your cross. You will be opposed. You will be mocked. You might even be persecuted. And there are brothers and sisters in Christ around the world right now that are under persecution and are losing their lives. But listen, Jesus will appear in all His glory, in all His splendor, and all the people of God who have made that confession that Jesus is King, though now they are fools, will be vindicated. They will be vindicated and being on the right side of eternity, they will give glory to their Savior forever and ever and ever. Friends, live your lives between these two bookends. Suffering, then glory. Your profession will not give you advancement in this world. It won't. But it will put you on the right side of God. And on the right side of eternity, those who trust Jesus to be their Lord and Savior, the King of kings. This confession is true. Live your life between these two realities. There is coming a great reversal. Isn't there? All the pomp and pride of all the people in the world who are 
see themselves as strong and mighty and popular. They make the decisions in the world and they run their businesses and they get in high-level positions. They see themselves as high and deserving. And who does Jesus say will inherit the kingdom? The poor in spirit. Those who mourn will be comforted. The meek will inherit the earth. Those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, they will be filled. Do you see the reversal that's coming? Your unbelieving friends and family have no idea that this is going to happen. And maybe you as a Christian don't live in light of this reality and so you, you, you worry and you live in fear and anxiety. Maybe you're afraid of being mocked and afraid of being thought of as weird. Maybe you're a young person in school and for you to be a faithful Christian it just seems really hard because all your friends are going to look at you weird. Listen, you're on the right side of history if you're on the right side of Jesus. And when you say Jesus is my King, you can look at all your friends and they might all abandon you. I've known people that that's happened to. You can say, Jesus is my Lord and Jesus is my Savior and I'm trusting this Savior. And if the world leaves me, I have a Savior and I will have a church family for all eternity because the great church triumphant will worship together the Lord of Lords for all eternity. So live in light of this plan. Jesus will be revealed and He will shine forth at the right time. God will show forth, shine forth His Son. And though we might not have an understanding of what that means for us now, we can be confident that we are on the right side of history if we're with Jesus. So that's the second glimpse that Paul gives to Timothy. God's going to reveal His Son. So press on. Press on. Here's a third glimpse. God rules. God rules. We look up into the throne room of heaven. We see a God sovereignly ruling all of His creation. Look with me at the verses right there before us. Verse 15. He which He will display at the proper time. He, referring to God the Father, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the blessed. That is the same word used in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It has ideas of happiness, contentedness, satisfaction. God reveals Himself as the supremely happy God. <laughs> Contented God. He is not frustrated. He is not exhausted. He's not barely holding on. He's not wringing His hands hoping everything works out. As we glimpse into what Paul is saying, God is like we encounter a happy God, a content God, a satisfied God. Not exhausted, not frustrated, not worried, not anxious. And I think His blessedness, His happiness, comes from the reality of the very next words, that He is the sovereign. The only sovereign. You see that? Only sovereign. No other competitors. No other sovereigns. He's perfectly content because at every moment, He's perfectly in control. 
He has no competitors. <laughs> he has no one who can upset or thwart his sovereign plan. He rules over all of history. He rules over the globe. And no one and nothing can come to conflict with him so as to get him off course of accomplishing exactly what he wants to accomplish. He is in total control. Absolute sovereignty here. The only sovereign. And that is why he is content. Because everything that's happening in the world is exactly as he planned. Everything that's happening in the world is exactly according to his eternal decree. Nothing can thwart it. Nothing can get in its way. Nothing can hinder him from accomplishing exactly that which he wants to accomplish. You say, okay, wait, hold on. What about fallen humanity? What about these people who hate God and are going against him and working against him? Let's, let's think about that for a second. Isaiah chapter 10. This will give us a good insight into how God sovereignly rules over his world. Isaiah chapter 10, you don't have to turn there, I'll explain what's going on. Israel at this point is a disobedient nation worthy of judgment. Israel is worthy of divine judgment. And what we see in chapter 10 of Isaiah is that the nation of Assyria, a godless nation, is wiping out all these other nations and they're on their way to Israel. Now, from Assyria's perspective, Assyria is just a bloodthirsty nation trying to wipe out as many nations as they can, gain as much power as they can. They're like terrorists. They want to make everyone afraid and gain as much power. That's what Assyria is doing. That's all they know. They're just trying to get as much as they can. In Isaiah chapter 10, we get a different perspective. In other words, we get a perspective that pulls out so far, we see actually what God is doing with Assyria. And in chapter 10, verse 5, God says this, Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Do you hear that? What is Assyria? They're just going trying to wipe out people. But what does God say Assyria is? God says Assyria is my tool to mete out judgment on the people of Israel who have deserved judgment. You should hang on a second. What are you saying? Here's what we're saying. God is saying that the godless nation of Assyria is functioning under God's sovereign decree so that they unknowingly are being used by God to accomplish exactly what God wants to accomplish as He judges His people Israel. Even the fallen nation of Assyria and their wickedness is a part of God's sovereign plan. There's a, a popular book out that's a great book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. Assyria is an instrument in the judge's hands. Assyria is the tool God is using to judge Israel. It's happening exactly how God intended it to happen. He's not back there watching Assyria going, oh no, there's people coming. Israel, do something. He's the one holding them and moving them. And yet they're doing it on their own free will. And what we'll see in Isaiah is they're accountable for it as well. You go, okay, wait a second. This is, this, is, this, is, this is a different way I've thought of God. Well, think about the crucifixion. Acts chapter 2, you could see it right there if you want to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verse 23, where you say, what about the crucifixion? Is God sovereign over that? I mean, the crucifixion, that's the chief of all crimes, isn't it? That's the, the, the worst crime of all crimes, where the wrongful accusation and then the violent crucifixion of the innocent Son of God. Where's God in that? Where's God in that? 
well, Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This is what it means for God to be the only sovereign. That fallen nations like Assyria are not outside of His sovereign decree. That the angry, bloodthirsty mob that would put Jesus on the cross is not outside of God's definite plan. Do you see that this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God? God is perfectly content with the universe and how it's running. Nothing thwarts Him. Nothing gets in His way. Nothing stops Him. It's all under His sovereign control. And if there is one molecule not under His sovereign control, then God is not God. He is utterly, totally sovereign. You say, okay, what does this have to do with Timothy? What does this have to do with him serving and pressing on? Here's, here's, here's the re relevance to us. You might be a complete mess down here. God's not. He's absolutely and blessedly sovereign. He is not concerned. He is unperturbed. He is unfazed. And your life might feel like it's unraveling. You might feel like everything's falling apart. You might have a hundred things you're worrying about right now, and God's not worried about a single one. Because God knows exactly what's going on. And God has it sovereignly decreed. And there's nothing that can go outside of His sovereign hand. And if you know the character of God, then you know He's good. And you know you can trust Him. And this idea of the sovereignty of God becomes the backbone for us in life. When we face suffering, we go, I don't understand God, but you are sovereign. You need to get near to this blessedly calm, contented, tranquil God who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the God who rules the rulers and is the boss of all bosses and the one who is over every authority this world has. Get near to Him, the God of all peace, and share in His peace. What are you worrying about? What fears are starting to strangle you? Could you look up and see God is the only sovereign? And He in His infinite goodness toward His children will only let that which is good for you happen in your life. He's so good. He, he will never allow ultimate harm to come to you. In fact, I think if you were to be snatched out of your life circumstances right now, just pulled up right out of your life and all the worries and concerns that are happening in your life, and He just pulled you up and gave you His perspective for a moment, and you were to look around and, and see what God is doing and all the other things that you don't know about and all the outcomes that He has planned for your life and your suffering and your situation, if He were to pull you out and just let you see for a moment, would you want to change any of those things? Listen, God is so sovereign and He's so good that if He were allowed you to take a look and give you other options, you would say, oh wait, no God, you're right. This is perfect for me. This is exactly where I need to be. That's how God is good to you. He is sovereign and He's arranging everything for His maximum glory and for your maximum good. Do you trust Him? Timothy needed to hear that. 
He's blessed, he's calm, he's contented. Anything that seems to be going wrong, like a nation attacking yours, or sin of a mob crucifying your Savior, even those things are not thwarting the plan of God. God is at peace, God is blessed, God knows his decrees, he's doing everything for his own glory and for your good. Cast your cares on him. Cast your cares on him. You need a sovereign God. We need a sovereign God. You might be worrying about the future and God's not. Worrying about finances, God's not. Worrying about what's going to happen with your kids, God isn't. God's not worried. God's not worried at all. This is what we have in dark times in our lives. God is sovereign. This is so blessedly practical. John Calvin a man who's known for his clear teaching on the sovereignty of God, when his infant son died two weeks after he was born, leaned into the sovereignty of God as a comfort and wrote, I'm sure with tears, these words that highlight his trust in the goodness and sovereignty of God, he wrote, the Lord has certainly inflicted a bitter wound in the death of our infant son. But he himself is a father and knows what is good for his children. John Calvin didn't try to explain it away by saying it was Satan who did it. God didn't have anything to do with this. He said, the Lord did this, but the Lord knows. The Lord knows what I need. Paul is saying to Timothy, look up to the sovereignty of God. Look up to the God who rules His creation. Look up to the God who is blessed and content and cannot be thwarted. Let's see a fourth glimpse of God. It's this. Fourth, God lives forever. You see those words in the text. God who alone has immortality. Kings will die. Civilizations will rise and fall. Everything is falling apart in this fallen world. And God isn't. God won't die. God will live forever. The word immortality literally could be translated the deathless one. It not only refers to the duration of His life, it refers to the reality that He cannot die. Nothing could kill Him. Nothing could wipe Him out of heaven and erase Him from existence. He will always exist for all eternity. He has existed and He will exist forever. You say, well, aren't we going to exist forever? We're immortal in that sense. Well, God's immortality is inherent to His character. We were created by Him and the only reason we will ever exist is because God allows us to exist. And this, friends, is another reason for confidence in God that the promises He makes, He will never break for all eternity. He will never die. And so the eternal future that is ours in Christ, we can look forward to confidence. He will not grow old. He will not grow senile and forget the promises He's made to us. For all eternity, this immortal God will lavish His blessings on His children forever. God gave us life. God will reveal His Son and He will vindicate us. God is ruling over the entire universe. God is living forever. We're in good hands. And we can press on. But let's look at the last glimpse of the character of God where it says, after verse 16, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. 
whom no one has ever seen or can see. To Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. We started this sermon by mentioning the weightlessness of God that is present in many lives and in many churches. And here, the fifth glimpse is the weightiness of God, that God is holy, dwelling in unapproachable light. He cannot be seen by us. He's invisible. The only way we can ever come to know God is if He takes the prerogative to reveal Himself to us. We cannot reason our way to Him. We cannot climb into the rooms of heaven and understand Him in our own fallen mind. He is transcendent. He is above us. He is not a creature. He is not a man. You cannot take the things you learned about humanity and stick them on God and expect to come to know Him. He's different. He he is holy, set apart. He is other. In this sense, He is mysterious. We can't know Him in full and see Him in total. All that we can know about God has been revealed to us in Scripture, so we must come to see what He's like from His Word. And Hebrews 12.29 says, our God is a consuming fire. I mean, it's like the human language. We're reaching to the very end of human language to try to find metaphors that describe what God is like. He's a consuming fire, the writer of Hebrews says. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, you are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. God's holiness is so blazingly glorious that He is unapproachable by fallen humanity. You might as well try to get a candle on the surface of the sun. You cannot approach Him. You cannot come near Him. He is different. He is high. He is lofty. He is holy. And sinners cannot come into His presence by themselves. If you serve a God that does not impress you, you've made that God up. That God in Scripture is so big and majestic and unapproachable and transcendent and weighty that we need to come to grips with this. And if we don't, we will have a small God and we will be the weaker for it. We need a kind of traumatic experience with the holiness of God. Like what happened to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 where he fell on his face, where he cursed himself. Woe is me when he saw the holiness of God. Or like Ezekiel when he saw the presence of God and he fell on his face shielding himself from the awful majesty of the God of Israel. Or like John the Apostle in Revelation chapter 1 when he saw the glorified Christ and like a dead man fell to the ground. This is what happens when sinners come into the presence of a holy God. God is greater and more beyond anything we could imagine. And so we can't just waltz flippantly into His presence as sinners. There's a story in 1 Samuel chapter 6 where the ark where God has promised His presence to dwell in the nation of Israel, it had been taken, and now it's being returned to Israel. 
It's on its way back. And as the ark is returning, there are some Israelites that kind of on the outskirts of the, the cities there, they see the ark coming. And many of these people get excited. A lot of the men, it says, they begin to rejoice. The ark's returning. The ark's returning. The presence of God is coming back. They begin to rejoice. And in the midst of their rejoicing, they forget that God had said in His Word that they were not supposed to look directly at the ark. And they are stricken dead, 70 men that day. Why? God's not a man. God is holy. You can't approach Him in your own terms. He's separate from sin. He doesn't tolerate sin in His presence. And I love the question that the men there in that story, what they ask themselves upon seeing many people dropping dead, they, they, they ask this question. And this is the question we all must ask ourselves. They ask this question. They say, who is able to stand before the Lord? This holy God. Who? who? Who among us can stand before this God? We're all sinners. He's holy. He's different. He's unapproachable. He dwells in a consuming fire. He has pure eyes. He can't even look at wrong. And here we are sinners. How is it possible that any of us can have any relationship with God? Who can stand? The answer, not you. Not me. God's holy. He will be treated as such. He will revere His name. He is unapproachable. You say, well, what can we do? What is our hope? We will be consumed if we try to approach Him. This, friends, is why we need a Savior. And this, friends, is exactly what God has provided for us in His Son, Jesus Christ. And this is why the Gospel is so glorious. If we take away the holiness of God, we will not appreciate Christ. We will not appreciate the cross. We will not appreciate the Gospel message because we will think that we deserve to be in the presence of this holy God. And He has said that we can't stand before Him in ourselves. God sent Jesus Christ. Think about what His death means. All our sin, all our guilt, all our shame on Him and the holy wrath of God is poured out on Christ. So it doesn't have to be poured out on you. And now we, by faith, are given the pure robes of the righteousness of Christ. We're forgiven our sins and we're clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That and that alone is how any of us will ever stand before God. It is in the righteousness of Christ. It is our only hope. If you haven't trusted Jesus Christ, let me again offer Him to you. Faith alone. The moment you trust this Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are forever justified before that holy God. And that holy God who is your judge, if you're not in Christ, will become your Father forever, showering His blessings on you. What a God we serve. Amen? Here's the point of it all encapsulated in that final line. To Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So Paul says, basically summarizing all this, go on, Timothy. Go on, Timothy. Serve with all your heart. Don't fear death. God is the one who gives life. Don't worry like 
that you might look like a fool to the world. God will reveal His Son and vindicate His children. Don't fret about the things going on. God is happily sovereign over all the things that are happening in your life, Timothy. He's working all things out for His glory. He will live forever. He will never let you down. His perfect transcendent holiness reminds us He is worth living and dying for. He will not be thwarted by anyone or anything. And we, being clothed in the righteousness of His Son, can consider this God our Father. To Him be honor and eternal dominion forever and ever. Amen? We're going to bow our heads and I'm going to ask you to quietly come to God in prayer. Pray a prayer of confession or a prayer of praise. But I want you to respond to God's Word in this text and how He has revealed Himself as He truly is.